So this morning we're continuing our sermon series in the book of Genesis. And we're in Genesis chapter 1. We're going to finish the first chapter here this morning. Last week we looked at God creating male and female in His image. We looked at the image of God and what that is and what the significance of that is. Now we're going to continue in the narrative when God gives them the command to be fruitful and multiply. You know, when we consider Genesis, if we have any view of, of, of the Bible and the beginnings, we typically conceive of God creating this garden paradise, placing in Adam and Eve, and they're in there with, with fig leaves or always in a, in a position in a book where you can't see anything. And so God creates these two beautiful people in this garden, and he gives them one command, one rule, don't eat of the fruit of that tree. And he puts that tree right in the middle. And we're thinking, well, what is going on here? Why would God create this wonderful couple and create this one tree right in the middle of the garden and give them one rule not to touch that tree? It seems that God is setting them up for a failure. Now, we're going to talk about that when we get into Genesis chapter 3. But it's important for us to understand that God didn't give Adam and Eve one rule to not eat that tree. In fact, God gave them a command back here in Genesis chapter 1. Their command, the first command in all of Scripture, is to be fruitful and to multiply, and to fill the earth, and to subdue the earth, and to rule or take dominion over all the living creatures. That was the command that God had given to them. So as people who are stewards of God, created in the image of God, He is giving them now rule over His creation that He's made. Okay, so this morning we're going to look at this mandate, this command. It's been called the dominion mandate uh, by people before us, so I'm going to use the same language to understand this command here in Genesis chapter 1. So we're going to understand first its nature, and we're going to consider how humanity has failed this mandate, and then how God has intervened in history, and we're going to shine the light on the Lord Jesus Christ this morning. So firstly, this first command, the dominion mandate. Look with me again at verse 26 and 20 through 28. God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Okay, so two main aspects we're going to look at here this morning. The first one, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The second thing we're going to look at is now subdue it. Subdue the earth and take dominion, rule over all of the living creatures. Okay, what is God meaning by those two things? Let's look at the first one, be fruitful and multiply. So God says here, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. If you're here this morning and you have the King James Version, you will read in that version, be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth. Now because of this translation, replenish the earth, some have come to the conclusion, well, aha, this is actually supportive of an old earth. That is, God had, like either a gap theory or or a day-age view, God had millions or billions of years before Adam and Eve, and when he created Adam and Eve, he was starting over again, and he says here, replenish the earth, which you understand to mean refill. So fill it back up again. 
But the problem here is not with the King James translation. Okay, the problem here is how the English language has changed and how people who come to the text of Scripture don't understand how language has changed. Okay, if you think about the word replenish, it means fill something up again. I need to replenish my cup. I need to fill it up again. I need to take a break and replenish my energy. I need to fill my energy back up again. We understand how we use that word in English today. In fact, the prefix re in front of a word often means to do it again. We have a redo, do it again, a reinvent, invent it again. Okay, a redesign. But it doesn't always mean that. Consider the word research. It doesn't mean search again. It means search completely. Think of the word replete. Okay, my essay was replete with grammatical errors. It means it was chock full of grammatical errors. And this word replete, which means full, completely full, is the verb form of this word replenish. But in our English language, replenish has come to mean fill again. When in 1611, when the King James translators translated this way, it meant fill completely. Okay, so there was never an idea that we need to replenish the earth. I said fill it up again. It was the idea that we need to fill this earth completely. So it's not the fault of the King James, not the fault of, um, but it's only those who would, who would not understand the history of our English language and how the original interpreters and how, what the Hebrew says at this point. Okay, so he tells us here to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. No idea of refilling. So what does it mean to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth? Well, I hope I don't need to explain too much. Uh, but what that means, okay? Hopefully you've had the birds and the beads conversation with mom and dad before, okay? What it means to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. But we must understand that when God here creates male and female, and when he weds them together and the two become one flesh, like we're going to see in Genesis chapter 2, that God's command to be fruitful and multiply is only to be accomplished through the covenant of marriage. It's always been God's design. That through this one flesh union of husband and wife coming together, that the result of that union would be children. And here, God says that he blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply. Children are a blessing from the Lord. Sex is a blessing from the Lord. It's not a a sinful or dirty concept. It's invented by God. But we as humanity have, have twisted and perverted that and, and removed God's good gift from its context. A marriage between a husband and a wife. Okay? So does this text mean that every single person should make it their life's goal to get married and to have as many children as possible? I would argue that it, it doesn't mean this because what we see in the New Testament is that not everyone is going to be married. And Paul says that's a good thing. It's good to be single. Jesus was single. Paul was single. He says, use your signal, singleness for the Lord. And not everyone who is married can have children. Okay? So it's not like we're disobeying God's command if we are not married. And it's not like we're disobeying God's command if, if we're married and for some reason we cannot have children. But what God is saying here, it is his plan for humanity to marry together, to be fruitful and multiply and to fill the earth as his image bearers. Okay, and this is said to be a blessing from God to be able to do this. Okay, so 
we have here, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And then it says, and subdue it. That is subdue the earth and have dominion over all the living creatures. Okay, so let's look at this subdue and have dominion. And what does this mean to subdue the earth and to exercise dominion over all the living creatures? Well, to subdue the earth is, we typically think of a negative connotation when we think of putting things in subjection or subduing them. But when we think of subduing the earth, it means harnessing the earth's energies, resources, minerals, what have you, harnessing the earth for the good of humanity, being good and faithful stewards of this planet and its resources that God has given to us for the sake of human flourishing. Use the earth as a servant for these image bearers of God. Okay, so this command provides us the foundation for scientific discovery, technological developments, using all these resources that God has given to us that he specifically put in the earth for us to use. God is calling us to use these things. And not only says to subdue or to use the earth for humanity's benefit or human flourishing, he says that human beings are to rule over the living creatures, to exercise authority over them, to take dominion over the living creatures. Now, what does he mean here? What God is saying here is that it's not wrong for you to hook up some oxen to your plow and to plow your field. It's not wrong for you to hook up some horses to your cart and to pull your cart or to pull a chuck wagon, maybe around a ring here in Calgary. Okay, he's saying it's not wrong to do these things because these animals are to be used for humanity's good. Not to abuse them and not to abuse the earth, but we're to rule over them and to exercise dominion over them. And so these commands give humanity the call to govern, use the earth and creatures wisely for the betterment of humanity. Okay, so we as God's image bearers are to rule over these things, to establish as God's um, under rulers, his rule and his authority, his peace across all of creation, represent God in exercising authority over the things that he has made. Now, we're going to talk about some of the abuses to these commands in just a moment and how they've been twisted and perverted and how they've been misunderstood. We're going to talk about that in just a moment. Before we get there, I want to finish looking at verses 29 to 31. Okay, so we're going to hold off on the command here to exercise dominion and be fruitful, multiply, and we're going to take a break and look at verses 29 to 31. Look at those ones with me. It says, And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. So here we have God wrapping up his creation week on the sixth day and calling his creation very good. Now this passage is curious to us, and we might read it and go, hmm, interesting, and move on uh, to the next chapter. Okay, but this chapter, this portion of scripture is very important because there have been many men in history who have really grappled with intellectual objections against the goodness of God. For instance, Charles Darwin. 
And, and more, more recently, you may have heard of Charles Templeton, um, someone who once proclaimed the gospel and then turned his back on it. And one of the objections that both Charles Darwin and Charles Templeton said was, as they look out in nature and as they see the animal world, and they see the dog-eat-dog, dog, they see the suffering, they see the carnivory, they see just the, the fight for survival, and they look at the world and they see so much suffering and death. How could a good God make a world like that? And so it caused them to reject God because they said, God, if he made that, is not good. Now, both in Charles Darwin's day and then Charles Templeton's day, the church had already given up a young earth view of the Bible. They had already given in to the old earth view and millions and billions of years of evolution where death and survival of the fittest and natural selection had been happening. And so they had no response for these men. But what we see here in Genesis 1 is a completely different story than what they would imagine. Because in the beginning, when God created everything and said, behold, it is very good, we have both man and male and female and the creatures all eating plants. They're all vegetarians. There was no carnivory. There was no idea of this, this fight and this dog-eat-dog dog and these animals going at it and devouring one another. That's all a product of sin. And so it was not so in the beginning. And so again, this text would refute those who would think this earth is millions and billions of years old and the fossil record happened all before Adam and Eve. God says quite clearly that he has given both to man and beast plants to eat. And so it's very important uh, that we have um, a good answer to those who say, look at the animal world and all the suffering. How could a good God create that? Well, he didn't. He created things very good. In the beginning, it was not so. But sin had entered into the world. You can imagine there on day number six, when God created the lion, that it ate grass just like the ox and it lay down with the lamb. That's how it was in the beginning, whenever God created all the animals. Okay, so it's like that. And then God here gives mankind dominion, calls him to fill the earth, to be his image bearers, to establish his rule and peace over the creation. And then there is a tragic failure. Okay, so now we're going to talk about humanity's failure to do what God tells them to do here in Genesis chapter 1. Adam and Eve's sin was not just that they ate of the fruit of the tree that God says don't eat. But they didn't obey even this command here in Genesis chapter 1. Okay? So how did Adam and Eve fail? Well, this command here calls on humanity to exercise dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth to rule over it, to put them in subjection to us as humanity, as God's image bearers. And what happened in the garden when the serpent tempt, tempted Eve and Adam? They listened to the serpent. Now they're going underneath the rule and the authority of the serpent, reversing the very order that God established in Genesis chapter 1. Then we have the flood. We have the sinful, sinfulness of the people is so great that God was going to remove them all from the face of the earth because of all of the sexual immorality hatred towards God. They were not acting as image bearers of God, being fruitful and multiply, filling the earth and putting things in subjection as God's stewards over his creation. After the flood, we have the account of Babel. 
And again, it still wasn't better. Instead of going forth and filling the earth, now they come together to build this tower to ascend up to the heavens. And after this account, the Old Testament is replete with murder, rape, polygamy, and other forms of sexual immorality and adultery, rather than this pattern of a union between one man and one woman being fruitful and multiply and being good stewards over God's creation. Now, what about today? We can read in the Old Testament and see how they failed, but what about us today? How, how, is, how is humanity faring to this mandate that God gave to humanity in the garden on day number six when he created man? Well, it's not just a Bible that we see God's gift of sex divorced from marriage. Although we see it continuing in our day. In marriage today, sex is divorced from children. Very commonplace. Not only that, but sex is divorced from marriage itself. And in fact, not only is sex divorced from marriage itself and and other kinds of relationships, but even today it's popular that sex is divorced from any kind of relationship. You have websites that can facilitate you to to hook up with somebody else and to have some kind of sexual relation and then just to go on your way with complete strangers. No relationships whatsoever. This is the kind of world we live in today. Abusing God's command here to be fruitful and multiply and to use his good gift within the bounds of marriage. Hebrews 13, 14 gives us this instruction, this warning. I want you to listen to Hebrews 13, 4, 4, sorry. Hebrews 13, 4. It says this. Let marriage be held in honor among all. And let the marriage bed be undefiled. Okay, there's the command. Here's the warning. For God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. It breaks my heart that in our society today we have such a flippant view of human sexuality. And that view has found its way in the church as well. The warning from God is that He will judge the sexually immoral. He will judge the adulterous. Okay, and what's he talking about here? Sexual immorality is, is a huge term. Whether you're having sexual relations outside the bounds of marriage with somebody else, or whether it's self-gratification in front of your computer screen, that is sexual immorality. God says he's going to judge it. And adultery is any kind of um, sexual immorality that is outside of the bounds of marriage, where you're already... Mi- Married, okay? So sexual immorality, anybody can do that. Adultery is those who are already in a marriage relationship and they're being unfaithful to their spouse, either with somebody else or again, with themselves in a computer screen or a magazine or something like that. The warning here is severe and and because we're saturated with a culture of pornography and of and of sex, we do not hear these these warnings for what they truly are. God is going to judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. In 1 Corinthians 6, 13, he says, don't you know the sexually immoral and the adulterous? They will not inherit the kingdom of God. And then he follows with good news, but such were some of you. You've been washed. You've been made clean. You've been sanctified by the blood of Jesus Christ through the Holy Spirit of our God. We need to pay attention to this warning. God created 
sexual relations for marriage. And he's given that gift of procreation to married couples. Okay? We today have perverted God's design for our own means and for our own gratification. And it leaves a path of destruction behind us. And many of you today know the destruction that sexual immorality and adultery leaves in the lives of others. So, we have that against us today, how we've divorced sex from marriage and the command to be fruitful and multiply. In fact, the very idea in our society today of being fruitful and multiply is seen as something by many as immoral in itself. There are many people today who have a platform on the media or whatever who think that the biggest problem in our world today is that we have too many people. It's people that are ruining the earth today. And if we can just get rid of some of people like us, the world will be a much better place. Even to the point where our own government has recently said, we're going to pay more for abortion overseas because this is a real problem, overpopulation. And the solution is to kill babies in their mother's womb. That's how we're going to deal with this overpopulation problem. In fact, there was one talk at a university in the States in 2006. Scientists came together to discuss this problem of human population. And a reporter at that event, he writes this. Dr. Pianka's talk at the TAS meeting was mostly of the problems humans are causing as we rapidly proliferate around the globe. The bulk of his talk was that he's waiting for the virus that will eventually arise and kill 90% of human population. He's a radical thinker, that one. I mean, he's basically advocating for the death of all but 10% of the current population. And at the risk of sounding just as radical, I think he's right. And there are many that would advocate that today. It's waiting for a disease or virus. They say, the problem is there are too many people and we were, we're disturbing the balance of nature and of Mother Earth. But what they don't consider when they sound these warnings is that as our population has increased, although troubled as our world is, our world has actually become less poor, less unhealthy. It's become less hungry. Okay, because the population controllers, those who say there's too many people, what they're focusing on is that there are too many mouths to feed and all they see in us are just creatures that need food. But what they are missing is that humanity, we are people created in the image of God. We are given dominion over this world and we're not just mouths to feed. We have brains to think. We have hands to work. Uh, we have hearts to love. And so we've seen that as the population has gone up, things, our plight has become less. And it's not so much that in these past few decades, as population has really spiked around the world, it's not because people are now getting this idea we need to, we need to breed like rabbits. It's more of the idea that no longer in our world are we dying like flies. Because things are getting better. As, as humanity is better at harnessing the energy and the power within the earth and using that for the betterment of humanity. What about the command here to subdue the earth and have dominion over the living creatures? Okay, This is also objected to today, just like people object for overpopulation. This command to subdue the earth and exercise dominion over it is seen as very anti-environmental. 
that Christians here and those who believe Genesis 1 are advocating for abuse of our environment and our world. However, this call here to subdue the earth is not to abuse the environment, but to harness it, to use it for human flourishing. Okay? And it's very important for us to remember that when we're given the call to subdue and to rule over both the earth and the animal kingdom, that humans are more important than this earth. And humans are more important than animals. Okay? It's it's an amazing thing that I, I need to stress that point. But in our day and age, we have to stress it. That human life is more important than animal life. More important than a plant or a tree. Because we are created in the image of God. And we're to be His image bearers. In fact, it's only the human or the only the Christian view, the biblical worldview that gives us a right understanding of nature because we can look at a tree. And as we look at a tree, we can we can wonder and marvel at its beauty because our God made that tree. And and look at his design. Look at his wisdom, look at his power and so we render praise and adoration to God for that tree. And yet we don't have a view of that tree like it's a, it's a person or a spirit. And so we, we can't chop it down. But if we need to use that tree to build our homes or to, to warm our fireplaces, then we can chop it down freely. And because we are Christians and because we understand that we are to love our fellow man, because we understand that we are to harness and use this world for the good of human flourishing, when we cut down a tree, we're going to plant two others in its place so the next generation can profit just as we have. That is the proper view of our environment. And it comes to us from Genesis 1 and the command of God. But both in the past and the present, this idea of the dominion mandate has been rebelled against. And of course, we can, we can lament in our day and age when people are not following the scriptures. In fact, people all throughout time have lamented that we are not doing what we've been called to do as God's image, image bearers. To represent God here on earth, to, to reflect Him, to be good stewards of all that He made, to, to take everything under subjection so that it all praises and glorifies God. And so as people have lamented about that state of affairs, they've tried a number of things to remedy that. We have the Crusades trying to rule and subdue. We have people advocating that we need more Christians in government and more Christians in lobby groups. Because that is going to help us to exercise and subdue. We have a focus on using policies and politics and rules to assert God's rule over creation. This is going to to help. We have a cry from some for more cultural engagement. The problem, they say, is why we don't have the influence that we are to have as God's image bearers. Is that we are not devoting ourselves as Christians to the arts. We are not writing uh, books of poetry and fiction. We're not involved in music. Uh, we're not involved in movies and, and these things that are going to shape and mold our culture. And because we've given up the arts, we've given up this mandate to take dominion. So we need to do more of that. Others have thought, well, we need to give up altogether and just isolate ourselves. Be like the Amish and just gather together in a group and we're just going to ignore the world. They're, 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 they're just lost going down here. But we here, we're going to construct 
a small portion of what God wanted in the beginning. But in all these different solutions that people have tried to try to assert God's rule over creation, they've all failed. They've all failed. Because man's plans and schemes and actions cannot right man's sinfulness. You know, man's ingenuity cannot erase man's failures. God has provided us a savior in the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is to him that we look to and long to when we have that aching sense in our heart that things are not right in this world, that God's rule and his peace are not as they should be. And so we look to Christ. We recognize that God's rule and peace will not come through human schemes. No, we gave that up in the garden. But God's rule and peace are going to come through the new Adam, Jesus Christ. In fact, in the New Testament, Jesus Christ himself is called the second Adam. The new Adam. Because in him is a new humanity. A humanity who's going to be faithful to God, who's recreated in God's image and and going even beyond what Adam and Eve were here in the garden. And how it's through Jesus Christ, when he returns, he's going to establish his kingdom, where he's going to subdue this earth for righteousness, where the peace of God and the rule of God is going to be exercised from coast to coast and all around this whole globe, and in fact, this entire universe. And we're going to have again the lion eating grass, laying down with the lamb. In fact, what it says to us in scripture, I'm going to read to you Isaiah 11. You can turn there if you wish. Isaiah chapter 11. So when we have this sense that this earth is not what it needs to be, it's not what God designed it to be, it's not what God intended it to be, we look to Christ because in Him, God's righteousness is fulfilled. Isaiah 11, I'm going to read the first 10 verses. It says, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse and a branch from its roots shall bear fruit. That's speaking of Christ. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness, he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips, he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness, the belt of his loins. And listen to this. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat and the calf and the lion, and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. And the cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. 
And when's that going to happen? Isaiah 65 tells us. It's from the new heavens and new earth. We have much of that same language happening in Isaiah 65. The same thing happening in Revelation 20 and 21 when Jesus Christ returns and establishes the new heavens and new earth. When he creates again, recreates this earth to an Eden-like conditions. And some would argue, well, in Isaiah 11, that's, that's figurative language. That's just talking about peace, times of peace. I don't think so. I think he's talking here about what God created back in day number six. And through the failure of the first representative of humanity, Adam, came so much death and destruction and judgment. And through the victory of the second Adam, Jesus Christ, comes a new humanity, a new life, and a recreation that is at peace. And so when we long for God's rule and peace to be over this creation, the, the thing that we are to turn to is not government, is not to take up the sword, but rather to long for and to look for and to hope for Jesus Christ. In fact, we should groan for Christ's return because that's what Romans 8 says creation is doing. Romans 8 says that creation, this earth, is groaning, waiting for the revealing of the sons of God, waiting for all of God's people to be redeemed and for the Son to return. And so we too, we groan for Christ's return. So at this point, if you've followed where we've gone, we've considered this command, we've looked at humanity's failure, we see God's remedy in the new man, Jesus Christ. And now he will exercise dominion and authority over the earth. He'll put it all under subjection and he'll eradicate sin. And again, we have the Eden-like conditions of the sixth day going on forever and ever and ever. Now the question is, what is our mandate then? Are we just to sit back and just to hope for Jesus Christ and just do nothing while we wait for him? What are we to do? We understand that we have failed as humanity to fulfill this commandment. We understand that it is fulfilled perfectly in the Lord Jesus Christ. But what is our mandate? What are we to do this week in light of this command here in Genesis chapter 1? One's view about how we are to proceed with this mandate is dictated um, or influenced heavily, I would say, by one's view of eschatology. One's view is the end, end times. If you have a view that of the end times that things are going to get better and better and better as the gospel is proclaimed and then Christ is going to return to a subdued earth, then you're going to be much more keen to say we need to go forth and we need to take dominion over culture and over government and over nations. If your view is one of a more pessimistic view, that is things are going to get worse and worse and worse and worse. And just when you think it can't get any worse, it's going to get a little bit worse and then Christ is going to come back. If you have that view, you're tempted to say, it's, no, it's, no, it's not important. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not going to vote. I'm not going to do anything. I'm not going to interact with the culture because, hey, it's, we're going downhill. I'm just going to hold on until Jesus Christ comes here. But I want to argue for something that I hope that both sides of the camp can agree on, okay? How we ought to view this dominion mandate today. And this is what I want to start with. First is this. We must recognize that Christ's kingdom, when peace is going to reign over this whole earth, is a future kingdom. Okay, it's a future kingdom. The kingdom of Christ is not here, at least not here in the sense that we read in Isaiah chapter 11 and Isaiah 65 and Revelation 20 and 21. We don't have the lion laying down with the lamb. 
We have sin still ruling and reigning in our hearts and in this world. And so we must understand that Christ's kingdom and its full glory and consummation is yet future. But there is an aspect of Christ's reign here on earth now. In the sense that, as Colossians says, when someone is born again, when someone is made a new creature in Christ, when they are birthed into this new humanity in the Lord Jesus Christ, that they are transferred, it says in Colossians 1.13, from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his Son. That is, our citizenship has changed as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. Not only have we been born again, new heart with new desires and new affections, but we've been transferred to that old kingdom, that old domain of darkness where Satan is the ruler, exercising authority. We've been ripped out from that and we've been transferred into the kingdom of Christ. So we are citizens of Christ's kingdom. Now some would take that logic and take it a step further and say, well, if we're all citizens of the kingdom of Christ then the church is the kingdom. Now, that's a logical fallacy because the church is not the kingdom. The kingdom is still future. But the church is made up of citizens of the kingdom. Okay? So I think it's important to remember that as we consider this dominion mandate, we're not the kingdom in the sense of its full kingdom. The kingdom is still future. We still long and hope for Christ's return, but yet we, as believers on the Lord Jesus Christ, as followers of him, we are citizens of his kingdom. And so we here as a church are not the kingdom, but you can think of us perhaps a better way of thinking of it as we're an outpost of God's kingdom. It's like almost like a, a military base in, in Iraq or Afghanistan. Have you ever seen these things online? They, they have these big cement walls and they have the, the military, the Canadian or, or American military behind these walls and it's a small outpost. And right in the middle of that thing, they have a big American flag flying, a big Canadian flag. As far as they're concerned, that is home. That is their kingdom, their domain. But yet, it's just an outpost. We are just an outpost of the kingdom because we, who we are as kingdom citizens gathered together longing for the return of Jesus Christ. Now the question is, what should we be doing as kingdom citizens, as part of this kingdom outpost, as we long for and await the return of Christ. It, does this dominion mandate mean anything to us? Okay, we're getting there. 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty eight. I want you to listen as I read this, okay? 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty eight. It says, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Okay, this passage, this 58th verse, comes at the end of 57 verses in chapter 15 in 1 Corinthians about the resurrection of Christ and of believers. And as we consider an entire chapter devoted to the resurrection, the application of the scriptures is therefore, in light of the coming resurrection, when your body will be made new with Christ, in light of what is to come in the future, therefore, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain. In other words, get to work. Do the Lord's work. Be steadfast, immovable. Wait for Christ's return, but yet get busy because your labor is not in vain. Now, what exactly does that mean? How do we apply that here to our dominion mandate to go forth and to be representatives of this kingdom? There's three things that I want to mention here this morning. 
three things that we can fulfill this command to abound in the work of the Lord. Okay? Three things. The proclamation of the word of God, intercessory prayer, and sacrificial love. These are, these are going to be our, our main fighting fronts. You know, think of the military, they have the land, sea, and air. We have the proclamation of God's word. We have intercessory prayer and we have sacrificial love. Those are our weapons. We're going to talk about those. Before we do, I just want to encourage you, when Paul says here to be steadfast and labor for him, that your work is not in vain, we must realize that every single one of us, all of humanity, in fact, has a desire to be a part of something grand. We have a desire to be part of a movement, a vision. You know, when somebody dies, we always want to try to explain, you know, how, how their death was, was not purposeless. It was not in vain. There, there was a reason for that because we always want a reason, a goal. And we have to recognize from this verse in 1 Corinthians 15, 58, if we're not laboring for the Lord, our work is in vain. If you're not on Christ's team, if you're not a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, if you've not denied yourself, take up your cross and follow him and to live for his sake and for the gospel, your life is wasted. It's in vain. It's for not. But as we follow Christ, we're part of a world-changing, universe-changing movement that knows no end. It goes on for all of eternity. That meets our desire to be part of something great and grand, does it not? So the three things that we're going to focus on as we, as kingdom citizens and as outposts of the kingdom, as we go forth to label, to uh, labor, to exercise God's rule and authority in this earth, what do we do? The first one, proclamation of God's word. Okay, we're called here in Genesis 1. The text open to you. We called there in Genesis 1 to be fruitful and multiply. So how does this command relate to the new humanity in Christ? Well, we're still given the command to be fruitful and multiply, but Christ put a spin on it when he gave us the Great Commission because not only are we to be fruitful and multiply physically, but also spiritually, to go forth and to make disciples. And when someone is born again, they are a new creation, a new birth, a new citizen of the kingdom. And so to be fruitful and multiply is our call to go forth and to make disciples and to see them matured into the person of Jesus Christ. And how do we do that? Through the proclamation of the word. Romans 10 reminds us that as people call upon the name of the Lord, they will be saved. Then it asks, how are they going to call upon the name of the Lord? Well, they must believe before they can call out to him in faith. Well, how are they going to believe? Well, they must hear it before they believe. And how are they going to hear unless someone preaches to them? And so the proclamation of, the God, of God's word is indispensable to this work of being fruitful and multiplying on a spiritual realm of making disciples. So therefore in Christ to fulfill this mandate, we follow the great commission to go forth and we make disciples through the proclamation of his word. John Calvin, one of the great reformers, writes this, Christ reigns whenever he subdues the world to himself by the preaching of his word. So if we're going to go forth and exercise dominion, we go forth and we preach the words of Christ. And Christ will subdue the world to himself through the preaching of his word. So if you are here this morning and you have that sense that you long for Christ to reign 
you long for Christ's rule to be established here, then let's be focused on proclaiming the word of God. We can't be focused on trying to redeem the world through government, trying to redeem the world through laws or lobbies, but rather we redeem the world through the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is God's chosen means to put this world in subjection to Christ. And I'm not just talking about evangelism. Okay, we, we all need the gospel. If, if, if we are going to put our own bodies under subjection and, 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 and bow down to the righteousness of God and be faithful to him in obedience, we need the preaching of God's word as well. So that's the first one, proclamation of God's word. The second weapon in our arsenal as we are to go forth and exercise dominion is intercessory prayer. Intercessory prayer. An intercessor is one who prays on behalf of another. He prays for them. He prays for their needs. He asks God to be gracious and, and to intervene in their place. Ephesians 6 reminds us of the spiritual battle we are in against Satan and his forces. And it calls us to put on the armor of God. And after being donned from head to toe with this armor of God and of wielding the sword of the Spirit. What does it call us to do in Ephesians 6? That's where we put this armor on. Start slashing. It says, pray. Pray. That's the instructions we're given after we don the armor to pray. And to pray for what? To pray for all the saints. To make supplication. To pray for boldness. To pray for the effectiveness of the proclaimed gospel. Intercessory prayer is our weapon as we go forth to see Christ's kingdom increase. We're all tempted to think that politics or other campaigns can do more to advance Christ's rule than through preaching the word and through prayer. But when we think this way, we are sorely mistaken and we all can get to this point. Is prayer really going to work? We can all get here. But if we neglect the proclamation of God's word, if we neglect prayer, it's like coming to a gunfight with a little jackknife. You, you, you've left your best weapons at home. Thirdly, the third weapon we have, sacrificial love. Sacrificial love. Of all the commands we are given in Scripture, of all the principles, of all the instructions, Jesus says we can, we can sum them up all down into this, and this first and greatest commandment, which is to love. To love God and to love our neighbor. That is the, the essence of being a follower of Christ. How are they, how are they going to know they're Christ's disciples? By their love. And love is this desire or act, acting for the highest good of somebody, to see their greatest joy. So to do this, we deny ourselves. Love is sacrificial. Perhaps it means that we accept the discomfort of confronting friends or family with the truth of the gospel. But we do it because we love them. And so we go forth with sacrificial love. Perhaps it means that we're going to serve our families, even when we're dog tired and sick, but we're going to do it for the sake of Christ and for love. Perhaps it means we're going to serve the church. We're going to take up the tasks that nobody else wants to do. And why are we going to do it? Because we love. So we come armed with sacrificial love. Perhaps we're going to get to know people in our church. We're going to get messy and get involved in relationships. Because when you get past the, the hi, bye, how are you, and what's your name, you find out that relationships are really messy. And people have a lot of problems. And how am I going to help all your problems? I have a lot of problems. But how are we going to do that? 
through sacrificial love, through loving one another, bearing one another's burdens. This is what we're called to do as a body. We're a family. We're called to love one another. This is a powerful weapon to build up the citizens in this kingdom outpost and to be a shining light into the world that God is here, that the Spirit's at work here because the, the truth is being proclaimed, because prayers of intercession are going up and because we sacrificially love one another. I want you also to realize that we're not alone in this fight. 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty eight says, uh, abound in the work of the Lord. That is, abound in the Lord's work. This is not just our work. This is the Lord's work. And think about what Jesus was about. Proclamation of God's word, intercessory prayer, and sacrificial love. These are not something new that Christ has given to us. Here, try out these new weapons, see how they work. This is exactly the thing that Christ did when he's on the earth. The exact same thing that he is doing now. He is now praying and interceding on our behalf such that we would not fail or falter, such that we go forth and proclaim the word that it will have its effect. And so we take great comfort that this is not just our fight, but Christ fights with us and through us and in us. And so as we consider this text, we consider that creation was very good and that it fell into corruption because of man's sin, that through Christ it's going to be redeemed again as we look forward to that coming redemption. Let's labor for Christ. Let's labor out of love. Let's labor with the proclamation of God's word, with intercessory prayer and with sacrificial love. Let's pray. God, I'm so very thankful that as we consider these texts back in Genesis chapter 1, that we have all of Scripture to unpack just how these truths all come together to give glory to Jesus Christ. Then we look back at Genesis chapter 1 and we see the failure of humanity. We look to Jesus Christ and we see his success. We see his perfection. We see his righteousness. We see his mercy and grace to call us to his own, not because of anything we've merited or deserved, not because of our good works, not because we're smarter than others, not because we came to church, but because you've been merciful and gracious to us and because your spirit has been sent into this world to win people and to transfer them, to rip them out of the grip of Satan and to place them into the loving hands of Jesus Christ where not one of them will be lost. Oh God, we thank you for the hold that Christ has upon us. We thank you for the wonder of the gospel. We thank you for the redemption of sins and we thank you for this call, this mandate, renewed in light of the new humanity in Christ, to go forth and to make disciples through the preaching of the word, to pray, and to sacrificially love one another as we have been loved. God, give us strength to do this. Give us joy. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.